Now I'm excited about today. Welcome to week one of The Last Wedding. And we are gonna be exploring over the next few weeks, what is this book about, right? A lot of, lot of stuff about this book said over the years and years. Today, my job is to lay a foundation for what we believe the book of Revelation is really about. I'm gonna challenge some theology today. I'm gonna go after some erroneous teaching today a little bit. And uh, today will be more of a challenging message for all of us than I maybe have ever shared with you before. And, uh, but we're also going to hear some funny stories today. And in fact, um, <laughs> I was, uh, I'm as an 80s kid. Anybody here born in 80 and around 80? Yeah, you come on. Come on. Thank God there's more of you. Honestly, I, I, think, I think people just lied in first service. <clears throat> or people didn't want to admit it, right? But right, but... I was born in 80, in 1980, and um, I know I probably looked like I was born in the late 90s. <laughs> Amen. But anyway, praise the Lord, everybody. Uh, yeah, so because I was born in the 80s, in the mid-90s, I grew up in the crux of end times preaching and a lot of stuff being said about the end of the world. Anybody feel me, right? In fact, in 1988, there was a book written called 88 Reasons, or excuse me, there was a book written in the 1980s called 88 Reasons Jesus Would Return in 1988, and we're still here, right? So obviously, some things were out of whack, right? It's uh, uh, so... You know, I grew up in that kind of theology, right? And I heard about the end of the world, quite honestly, more so than a child should hear about the end of the world. Uh, I heard all kinds of fantastical tales about Jesus' return, these incredible ideas about what the book of Revelation actually meant. And, you know, uh, most of that came from, unfortunately, it came from television preachers who just knew how to preach well, but didn't really know really much about anything other than how to preach well and have a TV ministry. But I believed them because so many people were in their churches and they had a lot of money and why would I not believe that, right? And so I grew up with that kind of stuff. I wanna call it mess because a lot of it was a bunch of mess that I grew up with. Um, some of it was good for my life. Uh, some of it made me have male pattern baldness. But that was not a joke. I'm just joking, okay? <laughs> So I was raised by my grandparents, mainly my grandmother. And just so that you're all aware, my grandmother is better than your grandmother. And so <laughs> I grew up in a little town in Alabama. I live in Tennessee now, but I grew up in Alabama. And in in, it was kind of like Mayberry, right? It was kind of Mayberry-ish. Now it's Methberry-ish. That's different than Mayberry. And so, you know, I grew up... <laughs> So glad y'all laugh with me because I would feel very bad. <laughs> and you know what's sad about this? I have a really good sermon and that's all some people will ever remember about this day, right? That's okay, it's okay. So, but I remember growing up, I mean, I grew up in the town where when the street light came on, right? Legitimately, that's when you knew to go home. And my grandparents just let us very young, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, just go. And I get it, I have children now, just go, <laughs> right? And so 
we were out playing in the streets, man, having a great time. The street light comes on. This is a true story. And I, when I, I know preachers exaggerate for humor. There's no exaggeration in this story, okay? I will let you know that. So the street light comes on. Me and my friend Jonathan, we're probably done throwing rocks at a lamppost or something, you know. And I get on my huffy bike and I head down the road to my house and I lay that bike down in the driveway, in the gravel driveway, and I walk in and I see to my right in this little living room that we had in this little three-bedroom home that I grew up in with my grandparents, my grandfather is passed out from knocking him back too hard that evening, right? His head is bloody where he had fallen and had an accident, right? This is what I grew up with. And my grandfather's there. He is out, man, on that fake green pleather couch that cracks real bad. Anybody know? Okay. And so if you don't know that, you have missed out on the whole culture, my friend. And so he's passed out and the screen on the television is that snowy thing, right? And it's so loud because my grandfather turned the television up so loud. I didn't realize this. If you drink too much, you go deaf. So, so he's got the TV blaring and it's... And I'm my, and I start looking around. My grandfather's. I cry out for my grandmother, Mama, where are you at? I run to the bedroom. She's not there. I go to the bathroom. She's not there. I go to the little laundry room. She's not there. And my heart begins to race, Tommy. My heart begins to race because it was at that moment that I realized as an 11-year-old boy and that very moment, I knew I had been left behind. That's so real and so true. My mind began to race back through all of the horrible things that I could have done at least since last Sunday because in my Pentecostal church, we got saved every Sunday. <laughs> right? Everything was a repentance and let's, let's accept Jesus again. I've lifted my hands more times than I can tell you. I got baptized six times. I think you're only supposed to do it like once. I wanted to make sure, <laughs> right? I wish I was exaggerating this. This is all true. My mind began to race back through all of the horrible things that I maybe could have thought I had done, right? As a, an 11 year old kid. And the only thing I could think of, I remember this so distinctly, yes, I peed in her flower bed, but do I go to hell over that? <laughs> This is bad. Oh. So as funny as all of this is now, and as real as all of this is, all of that is so very real for my life, and it shaped my view of Jesus. I wish someone had just told me, buddy, it's not that complicated. But humans do what humans do and they complicate what God simplifies. This is very real what I'm going to say to you. Maybe if someone could have told me, chill out, bro. It's all okay. 
I genuinely believed I could have enjoyed, I really need you to hear this, I could have enjoyed being a teenager. I lived my teenage life in fear that any moment I could die and go to hell or Jesus would return and I would walk into the living room, people's clothes would be on the floor, I would still be wearing mine because I got left. And can I just tell you, if you don't, you may not know, my, my career is not a preacher. You're thinking we can tell. <laughs> my career is a therapist. The religious trauma that that kind of stuff has caused in people has been paramount to having an anxious attachment in their life of them fearing God and fearing authority figures. Now, if you didn't grow up in any of this, come back for week two. But for the rest of us, this caused major problems in my brain to think that I would live. And, and, and I, 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 it was all for good reason. We wanted people to go to heaven. But you can't scare hell out of someone to get them to heaven. But fear was used as a means to discipline and a means to get people to do what is right. If somebody just told me it's, it's gonna be fine. And here's, here's what I would like to, how do I say it? Religion made things so serious, right? Religion made things so serious that I missed that God has orchestrated a wedding, not a war. And that is hard for apocalyptic people to hear. That is hard. Because I understand that your Uncle Jim probably took a class on the book of Revelation and had a Bible study book and a guide and taught you that. But Uncle Jim's only been saved for two years. You get, you get the point, right? Is that anybody can reach and grab and start saying anything. It doesn't mean that they're qualified to teach that. Yeah? Just because I can pick up a scalpel doesn't mean I need to do surgery. Come on, somebody. The church seems to be one of the only places that someone without the qualification can get up and spout as though they're an expert. Is this too much today? I'm gonna to keep going. It's gonna get heavier today. But I won't be back till June, so you got a month and a half to chill. <laughs> so what is this book about? By the way, if your name is Uncle Jim, don't be offended. We love you, Uncle Jim. Just don't teach a Bible class right now. <laughs> right? What is this all about? Let's go to Revelation chapter one. We're gonna start at the very beginning. Revelation chapter one, verse one says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. And that must soon take place is where people immediately go, this is future tense. But soon means soon. 
not 2,000 years later. Are you with me? Come on, somebody, right? Soon. What must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angels to his servants, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw it. Now we're going to skip together in Revelation 21. We're going to go all the way to the end of this thing, okay? Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. That is the gospel, by the way. That is good news right there, right? Yeah, amen to that. So if we're talking about a wedding, what is this book of Revelation? What is this thing about now? Here's the deal. I will warn you about the things that you listen to. Concerning this book, I'm also aware that you're listening to me about this book. So I get the push and pull here. Y'all get that, right? I get that. But I'm right. I'm joking. I'm just joking. That is a joke, I promise you. I don't have, I have just as many answers about some of this stuff as you do. But I also lean heavily into the academic part of this to make sure that we are on the right road for what we are looking at, okay? Now, so again, I understand the push and pull there, okay? What is the wedding about? If we're talking about a last wedding, what is the wedding about? Well, the bridal imagery of the New Jerusalem, which is described in verse two of Revelation 21, is about what this whole wedding is all about. Bridal imagery. The New Jerusalem is not only a place, some would say it's not actually a place, but a symbol. So you can say it's a place or just a symbol. It doesn't really change one way or the other for you. The New Jerusalem is not only a place, but a symbol of a love relationship between God and his people. The description of the city coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband is a beautiful poetic imagery of this last wedding, this ultimate feast of heaven and earth where we are to share in the ultimate relationship with God. The New Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, in the Bible, the relationship between God and his people is often compared to a bridegroom and his bride. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah tells us about this. He kind of gives some imagery about this back in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 54, 5, he says this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Similarly, we see this kind of imagery show up. Paul uses this kind of imagery in the book of Ephesians when he's writing to the church at Ephesus. He uses Ephesians 5 to share this in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church as he gave himself up for her. Remember, he's, he's using these, these positions here of bride and groom, right? So the image of the new Jerusalem as the bride adorned for her husband really is this powerful image of simply God's desire for intimacy and closeness with his people. 
The imagery of the bride adorned for husband is also a reminder to us that our relationship with God, hear this, is not one of duty or obligation, but rather of love and affection. We are not lowly servants, but we are his beloved children, his cherished bride. So who is the bride? I'm so glad y'all asked because I, I want to share something with you. Who is the bride here? The bride in the book of Revelation is a symbol of the church, which is the body of Christ. The bride of Christ is not a specific individual, but it is a collective of all people who are in Christ Jesus. The bride of Christ is a spiritual reality and it is comprised of all believers from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So we know what the bride is, we know what the final wedding is, but my job today is to kind of lay a foundation of not just what it is, but I wanna tell you what the book of Revelation is not. It is not a horror story. It is not a horror story. As a kid, y'all, I gotta tell you, I was pretty convinced that I was going to bump into the Antichrist at Walmart. I mean, I was convinced that I was gonna meet this dude face to face. And then because I grew up Pentecostal, I would immediately discern that he was the Antichrist. Ah, you're him, right? This is how I grew up thinking this, this stuff. And I, I had this picture in my mind too. I don't know if it was from Christian television or from preachers. I don't know what it is, but I invented this image of the Antichrist being this really great looking man in a, a really tight fitting, slim cut black suit with a black turtleneck driving a yellow Lamborghini with a very thick accent who happened to be very white. <laughs> I don't know why, I mean, he, <laughs> this is what I thought the Antichrist was. And if I'm honest with you, I think it's cool that he drives a Lambo. <laughs> but I want to give you some fun facts about the word Antichrist because it's part of what shows up in the conjecture of the book of Revelation. Okay? I never thought I would say fun facts and Antichrist together, but here we are. Okay, number one, this is gonna mess with you now. The word antichrist is not in the book of Revelation. It's not in there. The word, they may call him the son of perdition. He's got all these different terminologies, but the terminology itself is not in there. The word antichrist is only used five times in the whole Bible. The way I grew up, I would have thought it was the whole Bible. He feels me, right? So it is used in 1 and 2 John in verses 18 and 19, and it talks about the last hour. Hear this, this is gonna make you happy. If you're a theology geek, you'll love this. He's talking about the last hour of the old covenant, not the last hour of the end of an age or a cosmic collapse. You have to understand the book of 1 John was written mostly to the Gnostics of that day, not to believers of that day. And this is where this, this, this statement is gonna push you hard, but I just need you to lean into this with me. I need you to know something. 
Church in America, church in America, the Bible was not written to you. It was written for your benefit, but not to you. It was written to the house of Israel. It was written to a Jewish nation. And it is dangerous when we take a Middle Eastern written book and to try to apply it to white people in America or black people, or Hispanic people, fill in the blank. How, can I just make a real hard statement and then I'll move on and act like I didn't say this? Well, act like I didn't say it. Everybody agree, we're gonna act like he didn't say this. Don't tell Pastor Kyle. It is awful arrogant of us to think that that Bible was written about us. Can I benefit from the scripture? Absolutely. Is Jesus revealed in the scripture? He is the benefit of the scripture for you and I today. He is the focus of the scripture for you and I today. And people do this, they'll say, well, the Bible is clear. What? The way we have to say that is the Bible is clear to you, but it may not be clear to your neighbor. Is this too much today? Maybe this is a Wednesday night Bible teaching study rather than a Sunday morning sermon. We have to be careful with those statements because the Bible says a whole lot of things that we don't do. Can somebody say amen? We can at least all agree on that part, right? So we have to be careful with this. So it's not a horror story. Again, my, my job here is to always come and encourage you and to not just kick up unnecessary dust in a church. But sometimes we need things kicked up in us to remind us that maybe there's something different than what we've always believed. And if something is getting kicked up in you right now, just remember that's getting kicked up in you. It may not be getting kicked up in your neighbor. For some You've been waiting for somebody to tell you it's all gonna be okay. If you lived in fear the way I did, I needed someone to remind me of that. And if something is getting kicked up, maybe that's something you take to the Lord in prayer and say, God, what are you, what's going on in here for this to be kicked up in me like this? So I'm gonna kind of kick up a little harder here, okay? Just a little bit more. And then we can go get some chicken or something. <laughs> Who said that, by the way? Let me tell you something. We're going to talk when I'm done. That's, that's so good. Thank you. That, Everybody's backside in here just relaxed because of that. Thank you. The book of Revelation, church, is good news. Anything else, and I mean anything, anything else is theological conjecture and overreach from people who have been taught and believe that bad things have to happen for God's mission to be accomplished. Nothing bad has to happen for God's will to be done in your life. 
I do not have to abuse my children to get them to do what I need them to do. And neither does our heavenly father. I do not have to harm my sweet Nellie, my drama queen. She gets that from me, I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you, right? I don't have to abuse my level-headed 13-year-old boy who smells like he's never showered. I don't have to abuse him to get him to take a shower, actually. And I will never be a better parent than he is. Bad things don't have to happen for God's will to be done. God's will gets done when bad things happen. But it doesn't have to be that way. Humans complicate that. I complicate that. We don't have to believe a bad judgmental theology for God's will to be accomplished. Bishop Gene Robinson says it like this. It's funny, isn't it? That you can preach a judgmental and vengeful and angry God and nobody will mind. But you start preaching a God that is too accepting, too loving, too forgiving, too merciful, too kind, and you're in trouble. Which that also reveals something about our heart, doesn't it? The same is true for the book of Revelation. For some reason, there has to be more bad news than good news. But when that is true, when there has to be more bad news than good news, this reveals one of hard, two hard truths in our lives. Number one, we have been wired by erroneous and conjecture-filled teaching that have little clarity. And so we believe what we've been taught and we believe that we've been taught because at least we can make some sense out of it. And I get that. I have reached for teaching before to try to make some sense out of it, right? I've reached for it. I believed it because they said it and they're a famous preacher and they have a lot of people in their church and they're very rich and people wouldn't give if they didn't know and people trust them so I should trust them and they have charts. They have books. So they must be right. They must be in authority. So we believe it because we've been taught it and we've bought into it or this is the really tough one or something in us needs or wants God to be angry at someone just so long as it's not at me. Why? Because particularly in our country, I don't live anywhere else. In our country, we are preoccupied with judgment rather than love. The book of Revelation is not a puzzle to be solved. The Da Vinci Code was a great movie. The book of Revelation is not a power move or an invitation to war. It's not a political move on which you and I participate in some weird overthrow of a one world government. 
It's not a call to prepare for anything other than you getting to meet Jesus face to face. If you are in Christ Jesus, then you are already prepared. Come on, church. The book of Revelation is a book about the final reuniting of heaven and earth and the people of God feasting and laughing and singing and dancing and rejoicing because the Lamb of God has made all things new for you and I and that is the good news of the gospel. So Matt, what do I do with all the things that I've been taught? I don't know either. I know that we've got to go back to the drawing board on some of it, and that's what this series is all about. But Matt, what if you're wrong? What if they're wrong? What if I'm wrong? I hear all of that, and I genuinely know how much of a concern it was. What I can tell you is this. Here's what I do know. I do know without any hesitation if I want to know what the book of Revelation is about, the very first book, the very first verse in the book tells me what it's about. Verse one, it starts out this way. The revelation of Jesus Christ. So let me say it like this, church. If it doesn't reveal Jesus to a hurting world, then it's not worth revealing. If it doesn't give me hope, I don't want to talk about it. If it doesn't help me get out of my pain, if it doesn't help me process the divorce, if it doesn't help me process how to parent, if it doesn't help me get through all of the hell that life has thrown at me, you can keep it. But the good news of the gospel says when the kingdom of heaven is experienced, I will then experience righteousness, peace, and joy revealed by the Holy Spirit. And that is good news. I can believe that because that's the Jesus that's been with me my whole life. Even when I thought I was left behind. If this is your first time here, I'm not the senior pastor. He'll be back next week and it'll all be fine. Because <laughs> I know after. I don't understand. You know what that my watch just said? Sorry, I don't understand you. You and my wife both. <laughs> I understand that having a guest speaker right after Easter can be tricky, particularly with this kind of subject. But I want to tell you something about your pastor. Kyle Reynolds, Kyle Reynolds. He's going to approach this and help us all be free. And here's what I can tell you. If we can't be free, then what are we doing in Christ? We are free in Jesus Christ. That's the reason we show up here every week. And if you're new to church and you think, man, why are these people's hands in the air? We're just experiencing freedom. 
I, it looks weird. I know it's so weird. We, but just, we just want to be free. Can somebody say that with me? I just want to be free. I just want to be free. The way you play that bass, you look free already, by the way. How many knows you wanted to play bass too, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So I invite you guys to come back next week if this is your first time. Make sure you fill out that guest card as well. Let's all stand together. I got a lot more I want to share with you, but I can't preach another sermon. Apparently you're all invited to go to dinner afterwards and I'm paying, but... But until then, let's spend some time in worship today. And know that if nothing else comes out of this for you today, I just want to point back to Jesus and say, he's all that matters. When we can't understand what the Bible means, when we can't understand what the Bible says, there is a name that is above every name. And at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That I can understand. So let's worship him. Let's say thank you to him for making us free and securing a beautiful future at a glorious wedding. Amen. God bless you.